Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today is Ask Me Anything Day. And we have a bunch of questions. If I get through them quickly, I'll ask myself some because there are things on my mind. The first question is from Theban. He asks, uh, Elon Musk indicated that the fundamental motivation for his actions is to solve potential problems for, quote, humanity. And then he asks, is that in alignment with the objectivist ethics? Um, let me not shoot from the hip on that. My shot from the hip would be no. Uh, it depends on how he's taking that. To produce things of value to each individual human being or to many of them in the world is what every businessman does. It's what a producer does in a division of labor economies. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's solving problems for man qua man. But if he means it collectivistically, that his motivation uh, fundamentally is to be a do-gooder, then that is way out of line with the objectivist ethics. So. Humanity is a vague term, and wanting to solve potential problems for humanity is doubly vague. So I don't know what he means by that. In reality, I can tell you that his motivation is not collectivistic and altruistic. How do I know? Because he's too creative for that. In order to have creative solutions, you've got to love what you do and have your subconscious be integrated around that thing. And you, the subject matter has to fascinate you. That's how you get really creative solutions. If it's something you're doing out of duty to a collective, there won't be any creative thought. So the fact that he is creative suggests that he has an individualistic interpretation of solving humanity's problems. <clears throat> Brian asks, are there any items of knowledge intermediate between a single proposition and a theory? Do you get that? Say, I know what he means. If so, are there any rules of logic which apply to them? The answer is yes and yes. What is that? What is the, the hierarchy here? Sense perception. I'm looking at the camera right now. That's sensory perception. Concept formation. I have the concept camera, which I formed by seeing several of them, or even if I had only seen one but had imagined others. If I'm capable of doing that, I can have a concept camera that stands for a wide variety of image capturing devices. Proposition is the next higher thing. That's what happens when you apply a concept. This is a camera. A proposition is a statement. It's a predication of some predicate to some subject. 
camera, it's a predicate. This, the subject. I have a nose. I, the total being, is the subject. Nose is the predicate. That's a part-whole relationship. The other was a classification relationship. My color on the screen is rather weird today. My color in reality isn't, but I look weirdly colored on the screen. That color is an attribute here, not of me, but of my screen image. That's a proposition. S is P. S does P. S has P. S is one of the P's, where S is a subject and P is something you're saying about it, a predicate. So that is a proposition. It's a single thought contained in or expressed by a single simple sentence. What do I mean by simple? Well, if, if it's, I am weirdly colored, but still intelligent, that's two thoughts. I am weirdly colored. I am still intelligent, connected by a but, which means an exception to a possible generalization you might have made. Uh, so that's a, not a simple sentence. S is P and X is Y is two thoughts. So, okay, that are there any things intermediate between that and a theory, like the theory of evolution by natural selection or the theory, the Big Bang Theory, not the TV show, but the theory, which incidentally is not about the origin of the universe, as it's sometimes stated, that's an impossible concept but about the arrangement of the thing, the matter that we can perceive or detect so far in the universe. That's the, a subject for another session. Okay, so the, the Big Bang Theory, the theory of evolution by natural selection, uh, the theory that uh, chemical elements have their attraction to each other because they're unfilled electron shells in the atoms of the element. Theory does not mean, contrary to what the creationists want you to believe, does not mean uncertain. It just means it's very abstract. So is there anything between this is a camera and life on Earth is subject to evolution by natural selection? Yes. And those are two things. There's higher level propositions, more abstract propositions. This is a camera. This is a man-made device. This is an entity. These cameras are video devices. Video devices are example of high technology. Video devices are expensive. So you can get more abstract. You can make the subject more abstract. You can make the predicate more abstract. You can make both more abstract. Those are reached by induction. There can be some downward steps of deduction, but essentially the process of going more abstract is getting 
more uh, um, is in, inductive, going from some to all. So uh, that's one thing. A more interesting thing is putting propositions together. That is simpler than a theory, but more than a proposition. Let's call that an argument. Like, uh, you shouldn't vote for Donald Trump because if he runs again, because he's demonstrated that he's a wild man and does not accept reality in any sense. And anyone who doesn't accept reality and is a wild man should not be in high office, probably shouldn't be out on the streets. Now, that's an argument. You don't have to agree with it. I gave reasons for uh, which were propositions for a conclusion, which is a proposition. So Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. So Socrates is mortal. That's an argument. That's a syllogism. That's the atom of the argument world, the smallest argument you can have, two premises and a conclusion. So that... Um, that's more involved than uh, just forming a proposition. And are there rules about these things? Well, let me take one step higher. You can put together arguments into bigger arguments, and that's what a theory is. Theory puts together a lot of individual steps of reasoning, each one of which is puts the facts named by propositions together into a very general principle, an abstract fundamental uh, identification, <clears throat> if it's a true theory. So uh, are there rules? Yes, the rules of inductive and deductive logic. The rules of deductive logic were discovered by Aristotle, and it's amazing how far he got for a guy who died in 322 B.C., there's most of what you would cover in a, an introductory logic course or would have in the old days when those were taught in the Aristotelian school were discovered by Aristotle. So, for instance, you've all heard of the ad hominem fallacy. That was Aristotle. You've heard perhaps of equivocation. That's the four terms fallacy that Aristotle Discovered. Maybe you've heard of undistributed middle or affirming the consequent. That's those are variants of Aristotle's discovery. So he is the father of logic. That's the title that's bestowed upon him, and it's well deserved. And that was a monumental thing that lent objectivity to argument. Before Aristotle. People made arguments, especially the Greeks who loved, the ancient Greeks loved to argue. But the only thing they had to, to go by to decide whether it was a valid argument or not was their feelings. Aristotle systematized, rationalized, and, and um, defined so many things in logic that are still used and taught today. So, Yes, that's deductive logic. Inductive logic, boy, this turned out to be a juicy question. Inductive logic, there's some things that are known, but not very much. 
the best thing on inductive logic is Leonard Peikoff's work to solve the problem of induction, uh, which is in the book, The Logical Leap. The first chapter is a report on his theory. And his theory is essentially that inductions are hierarchical. Some inductions presuppose other inductions. That is, uh, to get to all men or mortal, you can't get to that from sense perception. You first have to go through things like pushing a ball moves it. Or when it rains, the ground gets wet. Or fire burns paper. All those are inductions, and they're all made possible by the open-ended nature of concepts according to the objectivist theory of concepts. Concepts are open-ended, so they're not just about the few concretes you see, but they organized reality into open-ended groups that get larger and larger. Well, that's a little misleading. Every time you come across a new example of the concept, you integrate it into the concept. Oh, there's a camera I've never seen before, but it's a camera. Now I know cameras can look like that too and function like that. So yes, there are things in between. Yes, there are rules. No, those rules are not completely worked out for induction. Deduction they are. But for induction, that's really gets into scientific method beyond the simplest infallible steps, and that one's coming right after that. But read The Logical Leap, uh, and you'll find out what this, the correct understanding of induction is. And I think Dr. Peacock solved the problem of induction in, that, um, in the work that's reported on in that first chapter. The other chapters I don't stand by, but the first chapter I do. Michael asks, what is your evaluation of Milton Friedman? Well, not quite as low as Ayn Rand's, and I'll tell you why. Ayn Rand uh, thought he, he was just pathetic and worthless because, yeah, with this, a lot of good reasons for it, he was the guy who invented the negative income tax, for one thing. He opposes the gold standard. Now, that's a kind of small thing in the scheme of things. But he separated values from facts. And in economics, he has the position that economics doesn't make value judgments. And the essence of economics is based upon the value judgments of property ownership through individual rights and the production not is good and destruction is bad because life is good and death is bad. So it's it does not consist in the making. The science does not make value judgments. It does not say when supply goes down, uh, and demand remains the same. The price goes up, but that's a good thing. Doesn't say any, it doesn't evaluate. It just describes cause and effect relationships. But it's cause and effect relationships 
among things that embody value judgments like money, property. You cannot have a science of economics if you cannot distinguish who owns what and who doesn't. That's a moral concept. So Ayn Rand was very against him on those grounds. I have a little better view of Milton Friedman because when the price controls were put on in 1973, two, Nixon slapped on wage and price controls. And overnight, by decree of Nixon, we were in a statist economy. We were living in a dictatorship. Goods started disappearing from the shelves. It was a disaster. He had to retreat from it. And he did so in two phases. But when that happened, everybody in that had a public voice in the world spoke out in favor of it, in favor of price controls, except two people, Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman took a moral stand, of course Ayn Rand did. Milton Friedman said it was slavery. I wrote him a letter. I never met the man, but I wrote him a letter congratulating him on his moral fiber in standing up and being the only other person in America besides Ayn Rand who condemned this moral. And he thanked me, wrote back thanking me for it. So uh, I think he's a little bit better than maybe became better. That is the very thing that Ayn Rand damned him for. Well, I don't think she quite damned him. But looked down on him for was his um, separation morality from economic policy. But when the rubber had hit the road there, he condemned it morally. In the movie, The Death of Stalin, a, do uh, a doctor is forced to cure the dictator under threat of death. Why isn't this an instance of forced driving thought? Because he didn't have to think. So the question is, uh, based upon the idea that force destroys the mind. And an example of a doctor being forced to, you know, he doesn't cure the, he took some action. Let's say he, what, what he gave him a transfusion or something, uh, cut out a tumor. Why isn't that an instance of force driving thought? Why, why isn't that the mind functioning in force? Two reasons. Number one, other than that, other than that action, he wasn't living completely under force the way he was there. Now, living in Soviet Russia, you're living under force and the mind is stopped. And that's why medicine in the Soviet Union was so awful. Secondly, what he was doing was applying skills and knowledge that he'd automated. So when someone points a gun at your head and says, recite the alphabet, aside from the fact that you might not, you might be terrified. Let's say he says, you know, I'm going to have the police arrest you and go after your family unless you recite the alphabet. 
You can do it. That's not thinking. That's rehearsing automatized stuff that you can do. The problem is no creative thought, no real thought. Thought is not 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. Thought is, I wonder why the theory of limits is presented the way it is, or that, that's a little highfalutin. Well, I wonder why Ayn Rand didn't like Milton Friedman when he seems to be pretty good. That's thought. Uh, how are we doing here? Oh, good. We got time. Alexander Scott, I believe you have dabbled in computer. No, I believe you have dabbled in computer program. No. I've devoted years of my life to it, unfortunately. You know, years that would have been better spent doing something else. I will give you this. I'm a bad programmer. But I started in 1980. And for three years, programming in compiled basic, I was programming, I got the bug, you know, and I was programming so much that I had to force myself to go to bed. I always wanted to do one more compile because I think I found a problem. If so, what languages do you know and how have you applied them? I know, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I know basic. I know a little Python, you know, I would say a, a beginner's level. I've coded a thousand lines of code, two thousand lines of code in in, Py, in in different little small programs in Python. Uh, Python's a great language until you get into the really hairy stuff uh, about um, you know the object oriented. I never got into object oriented. Never got into functions that are recursive. Uh, and I wanted to, but I held myself back. Uh, how have you applied them? Well, the HBL has run entirely from the beginning on my software. Is that fair? To, the, this, this, you call them scripts, I think, if they're short enough. But I think of them as programs. The programs I wrote handle... Every aspect of HBL, including you know, mailing to a mailing list and subscriptions we used to handle. Now, now it's handled by uh, wishlist members. But I'm going to be forbidden to touch the programming when we go to the new HBL. That's my membership for fee site. Uh, when that's launched in a matter of a couple of weeks, the developers forbidden me to get in there and do anything that, you know, I want to do. Uh, so I've applied it a lot. How have I applied them philosophically? It's helped me understand philosophy. I got a story for you if you're in the mood for stories. In about 1980 or 81, Ayn Rand came to my apartment and I sat her down at my North Star Horizon S100 based system and had her write a little program, a Hello World program. 
Now, the program simply was a loop. Ten. ten label ten or, or start colon. Print. Hello, quote, hello, comma, world, space, world, exclamation point, close quote, semicolon. Next line, go to start, go to line 10, whatever it was. So it filled the screen with hello world. Now, you have to understand in 1981, to fill the screen, even though I modified my um, the innards of my North Star Horizon to double its writing speed, but it went the 80 column width like this. So it took about three seconds to fill the screen. And then I guess it was scrolling, but you couldn't see that because everything was the same. She was not impressed. When I did that the first time, I was blown away. I did that? She was not impressed. However, she told me that she thought that computers, she you know, was glad that she did it, I think. Computers, she thought, held a lot of significance for epistemology. And the one thing she mentioned is that they're binary, that it's A or non-A. And she thought there's a lot of parallels between computing and thinking. That's a dangerous way of putting it. Thinking involves consciousness. Computers are not conscious. Thinking is volitional. Computers are deterministic. But such a thing as, well, you have to have binary. Let me get speaking of computers. This uh, camera that I have goes off every 30 minutes. So I guess we've been doing this for 30 minutes or including the time before I got on the air. Uh, she also used a computer analogy for the subconscious back in the 50s when the computer was the univac. She said, your subconscious is like a univac. And that's very true. It's uh, there, there are great similarities there, but she thought even that you know, for logic, knowledge of computers and programming could help you, and I think it does. Moving on, Vandy Ken, being a professional games player, poker, chess, sports, esports, fulfill man's need for productivity, assuming you can make a living at it, takes it seriously, pushes, pursues growth, growth, etc. Um, yes, in essence. Why? Because it's entertaining to watch. So take poker, which is a zero-sum game. Millions of people watch poker on cable TV. It's very interesting, and it calls upon thinking skills, the ones who win, and the ability, which I lack a lot, the ability to master your emotions. I've played poker with friends, you know, 25 cent, 50 cent limit betting. 
since about 1966 with big gaps in it, but I've played a fair amount of poker. I, I play with my wife. We have two fictional characters that sit in and we each play two hands because you need a certain number of people to make it interesting. You can't go by your wishes. Oh, I I think I, I, I just know I'm going to get a straight here. No. I think this is going to develop. I don't want to fall. No, you have to go by reason. And it's fun to watch that activity in other people. Spectator sports are, of course, enormously popular in baseball, football, soccer. And they provide the spectacle of excellence at goal-directed action. The fact that the goals are arbitrary adds to the focus. You would think, well, doesn't that hurt it? No, it adds to the focus on performance. You're not looking at, oh, well, gee, look at the steal he made. You're, you're saying, boy, look at how he turned that double play. Because the play in itself means nothing except in the context of competition and more and more athleticism and skilled human performance. So the one reason why sports is so popular today is the lack of heroes. There are heroes to admire, people doing great things in sports, but not in the real world very much. Uh, Andrea asked, Dr. Binsringer, are you working on a book on the philosophy of mathematics? Yes. If so, when will it be published? You can't ask an objectivist author that. I remember, you know, well, let's go back to Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand predicted that Atlas Shrugged, which took her 13 years would be done in a year and a half when she started. She said, it won't be a long thing like the Fountainhead. Well, of course, it's 50% longer almost than the Fountainhead. So that tradition was carried on with Leonard Peikoff, who promised the um, ominous parallels. He started that, he took a semester off from teaching in 1968 in order to complete the book and get it out in time for the 1968 elections. He didn't, it didn't appear until 1981. Opar, the objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand took even longer. My book, How We Know, took 14 years. Now, I wasn't always working on it because I got stymied and lost motivation but i spent two years editing that two years and that was heavy work i mean that wasn't oh maybe sometime this week i'll get around to that that was almost daily work of editing so am i working on a book on the philosophy of mathematics yes but uh I have a book before that, a book on free will, which is another one I promised to get out real quick because I, I thought I would just 
push push together some old stuff that I'd written. But uh, you can't ask me that. I was working on the mathematics book yesterday. I was working on it today. I think uh, I have so many things that would startle you, like if you know anything about mathematics. I think the theory of limits is misconceived. I don't think there are any real numbers. They're not numbers. I don't think the number line is a helpful thing. I don't believe that um, there's any infinite sets. I'm not sure I even believe in finite sets, as if you could believe. So I have a very, very different approach, Aristotelian approach to mathematics, and it removes all the surprising and contradictory things about it. But the problem is that although I had four semesters at MIT in math, I don't really know that much. And I've, I've tried to, you know, take tutoring on it recently, and that was difficult, but I, I think I know more now than before <laughs> I started. But it's it's not an easy thing to do. Um, maybe we could take that last one. No, we should stop. That's a good for another one. I want to discuss um, the election and Biden's meeting with President Xi. So maybe we can do that next Monday. Current events. And then there we'll get to these other questions. Thank you very much. See you next Monday.